Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. It is time for those going to Kingdom Kids to, in an orderly fashion, depart from the sanctuary to the classrooms. Have fun, guys. All right, see ya, dude. <laughs> Today we start a... Uh, new sermon series. It's going to be 13 weeks long. It's with much uh, joy and anticipation that we're going to go through the account of Gideon from the book of Judges. The Lord has really laid this on my heart. I'm not sure I've been thinking about it since, you know, we went through Mark for nine months. I think since about like Mark 3, I was thinking about Gideon and trying to get to this point. So I hope it turns out, I'm trusting in the Lord that it's going to turn out for us as well as I believe that... um, He's laid it on my heart, so I'm going to work really hard. We've worked really hard to communicate this in a new, compelling way in lots of different um, genres of delivery, lots of different secondary activities, and we did it together as a group of planners, so we're hoping this is a blessing for you. Over the next 13 weeks, we'll be taking a deep dive into the calling, the mission, and the downfall of Gideon. We're going to discuss how to apply some of the lessons from his life Um, So we can learn how to embrace what God has promised us and avoid the pitfalls of what that can sometimes bring when we begin seeing ourselves through our own eyes instead of through the eyes of the God who has called us. In this way, Gideon, and this is the title of today's message, is both a man of war, one uh, through whom God waged battle against idolatry in the land of Israel, but also a man of warning whose life is a cautionary tale to us that we must never, ever lose sight of our identity in Christ, of of who we are, who God declares that we are, not who we believe we are or who we, frankly, want to be. So when you hear the name Gideon, what do you think of? I know not long ago when I heard the name Gideon, all I thought about were those Bibles in the top drawer of motel rooms across the world, right? The Gideon's Bible, left courtesy of. Maybe you know Gideon in the story, and you think of a mighty warrior, a man who with 300 men defeated the Midianites, the enemies of Israel. Maybe you know Gideon or resonate with the idea that Gideon was a fearful man who tested God and asked for signs again and again, like the golden fleece. Maybe that rings a bell. Or maybe you know about Gideon's downfall at the end of his life, and he serves as a cautionary tale, somebody that we need to be careful not to emulate in those regards. The truth is, is that he is what you would call a round character, like any of us. He has both positive and negative traits. You know, maybe his was, maybe he's not any different than any one of us, the average person. 
What I want to caution us against as we go through this account is that we look at Gideon and think of Gideon as one of those mighty men of war out there. Someone who does great things for God. And quietly in our hearts say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I have nothing to which I can relate in the story of Gideon because, after all, it's Gideon. He's in the Hall of Fame of Faith in the book of Hebrews. He is one of those characters that everyone who knows the Bible well knows about, but that's not me. That's not me. But we'll see he's a person, just like us, of complexity, with competing desires and both glimpses of resolve and of fear. But I could go on and talk about Gideon, but I think it would be better if we just heard it firsthand from somebody who knew Gideon best, his servant, Hura. For seven long years, Midianite raiders from the east wreaked havoc on our land and oppressed us. At harvest time, after we had planted our crop and worked the soil by the sweat of our brow, they would come in on camels, swarms of them, so many that we would hide in caves and watch as they stripped our land bare, devouring our crop like locusts and taking what they wanted from our flocks and herds. They were savages. My master Gideon was in the wine press when the angel came to him. He told me he was down low at the bottom of the wine press, threshing wheat, said he was trying to hide it from the enemy, protect what he had. That's what he was doing when the angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, the Lord is with you, courageous warrior. Now, my master was no warrior. He was not one to lead an army of soldiers. He was a farmer, brought in the harvest, same as any other man. Although that year, you could scarcely call it a harvest after what those thieves took from he could hardly believe his ears when the angel said that he, my master Gideon, was to go and save Israel from the Midianites. When he realized that it was actually Yahweh himself who was speaking with him, he feared for his life. But the Lord comforted him. And then he built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. That night, after the sun had set, when all of his family was asleep, he led me and nine other servants away to his father's altar to Baal. Told us to tear it down, the altar and the Asherah pole beside it. My master then commanded us to build an altar to the Lord our God on top of where the altar to Baal once stood. Then we used wood from the Asherah pole to make a burnt offering. In the morning, when the men of the town found out what had happened, they were furious. Everyone wanted to take my master's life for what he had done. Somehow, my master escaped harm, and after that day, people started calling him Jeroboam, the one who contends with Baal. Later, when Gideon was about to leave, lead an army of our brothers against the Midianites, Yahweh told him that he had far too many men, instructed him how he should decrease the number of his soldiers down to 300 men. That way, when the Midianites were defeated, credit would go only to Yahweh. That night, the Lord sent him to spy on the enemy's camp, and he took me along with him. The enemy's numbers were far greater than ours. Their camp filled the whole valley, men and camels everywhere, like sand on the seashore. How could we expect to defeat them? 
But while we hid, we overheard two of their men talking to one another. They were frightened. One of the men spoke of a dream he'd had the night before, about how Yahweh had given the Midianites and the entire camp into the hand of my master. This was the sign that we needed to hear, so we returned to our camp. But this was not going to be any ordinary battle. God wanted us to do things his way. Faithfully following God's instructions, my master told us to collect shofars and torches and be prepared to act. On my master's signal, all 300 of us blew our shofars and waved our torches and said, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The Lord caused the Midianites to turn on each other in con confusion and fear. We didn't even have to fight that night. We only needed to give chase to those who fled to make sure that they never pillaged Israel again. It was a great victory, but my master let it go to his head. He assembled an even larger army from the neighboring tribes who'd heard about the Lord's victory. Traveling east with this army, we stopped at two Israelite towns where my master asked for food for the soldiers. In both towns, the elders refused to feed us, fearing that we might not win that the Midianites we were pursuing might come back and punish them for helping us. Later, after a victory in battle, we returned to those towns, and my master savagely punished the people of those towns. My master lived on for many years, and when he died, he was buried in the grave of his father at Ophrah. And what has been said about the sins of the fathers being visited on the sons was true of the people of Israel after his death. There was peace in the land during my master's lifetime, but the people of Israel eventually went back to worshiping Baal. And once again, they forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies through this faithful, willing, but imperfect man, my master Gideon. Well done, Perah. We just heard from Gideon's lifelong and faithful servant. And as I said, you know, you might not think of a, uh, yourself as a Gideon, but when God calls a person, he looks for the willing, the faithful, and the imperfect. So we're in chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Judges. Okay, It's not a very long account. It's actually pretty short. You might ask yourself, how can we get 13 weeks of content? We do. We get 13 weeks of content out of these simple uh, three simple chapters. They're jam-packed with lessons for us about how to live and what to avoid. When we look at the book of Judges, I want to give you a little overview of what this book is all about. Many of you, I'm sure, have studied it, but the word judge does not mean somebody who condemns somebody else or strikes a gavel against uh, a plate on a bench. It's not somebody who declares someone innocent or guilty. The word judge is somebody, mishpatim, judges, is somebody who... Um, God raises to judge the enemies of Israel, one who raises, God raises up to rescue Israel from all of her enemies. This was before there was a king, and this was after the Israelites entered the promised land. Now, what's been noticed for hundreds of years, really, let me just start here, really one of the thesis statements of the book of Judges is found at the end, and this will give you a flavor of how Israel was at the time of the book of Judges. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And listen to this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, that doesn't sound too much different than the world we live in today, does it? 
So this is part of the reason that the Lord has really set this book on my heart. It's because it feels like in some ways we are living under the thumb of our invaders. It feels like we're in a uh, society that everyone does what they think is right. What feels right to them, so it must be okay. And those who get in the way are marginalized. The tricky part of this is to not create a situation where it's us and them. Because in the end, we are the society that we proclaim. We are the people that we rail against. As we see in the book of Judges, the issue really is not the fact that these are Midianites invading the land. It was the sin of the nation of Israel, which brought consequences to the nation. It wasn't just a crisis of invaders. It was, a, it was consequences for Israelite sin. For a long time, people have noticed in the book of Judges a cycle. It's called the cycle of sin. I wish I had a graphic. I forgot to give it to Aaron. But imagine for a moment, if you will. Okay, It starts with let peace in the land. The Israelites entered the land. They served the Lord their God. They didn't worship the God of, in the Bible here, it says the God of the Amorites. They, didn't, they weren't idolaters. They were faithful to God. Over time, through their integration into the land of Israel, through their intermarrying with people who were not Israelite, they began to move away from the one true God and begin to worship the Canaanite god Baal. Okay, Baal, 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 however you choose to say it. You'll see it in there. It's B-A-A-L. After they would begin to idolize this other god, God, true to his word, would send invaders from surrounding countries. In the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, this was the consequence for their behavior. If you turn to another god, there'll be invaders. If you turn to another god, the, the agricultural prosperity that I promised will be gone. If you recall, there was an episode in the book of Joshua where they sent spies into the land, and they come out with a bunch of grapes so big two people have to hold it. Okay, that's what God's blessing can do to a nation who honors him. But if they dishonored him, if they disobeyed, then all of those blessings, all of that agricultural and geopolitical and all those blessings would dry up and they would be invaded. Once they were invaded, they would cry out to God and say, Lord, help us. We'll see that it wasn't always a cry of repentance. In fact, it was never a cry of repentance. It was a cry of help. It was, we need you. It was a foxhole prayer. It was a Santa Claus God that they would pray to and say, we need something now that we can't do it for ourselves. And God would, after them calling out, would raise up a judge like Gideon who would then liberate the nation of Israel and there'd be a moment of prosperity and the whole cycle would repeat again. What's amazing to me about that is, I don't know, as I explained it, I can actually resonate with that cycle of sin in my own heart. I can see how there are times where I cry out to God when I need help, when really it's a consequence of my actions. So I repent and turn to the one true God again who raises up some sort of deliverer for me, whether it have been done on the cross 2,000 years ago or Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, or he brings someone alongside of me. Things are good. I'm trusting the Lord only to fall right back in to that same cycle. And so this is the environment and the context that Gideon is called. This is the context in the nation of Israel as we go through these next 12 weeks. This week, I would like us, before we get into the text itself, I'd like us to focus specifically on the character of Gideon. We're going to do something of a brief character study. We're going to see what kind of person God calls. We're going to see what are the attributes of the person who does something great for God. Now, at the outset, let me say this. 
There are times when I say things like, God's calling you to great things, and you might think, oh my goodness, he's calling me to lead a 10,000-person ministry, and I need to step in front of hundreds of people and get on stage and talk and do all those things. But you know what? God often does great things that look very modest to us in our eyes. Having a conversation with somebody that you feel uncomfortable with, but trusting the Lord for the result. Living with somebody or caregiving for somebody with an illness. Day after day, week after week. That's a mighty thing. The way we raise our children in this environment, that's a mighty work of God. That we must look to Him because the truth is, is I don't know about you, none of us feel capable of parenting in this environment. None of us. That's a mighty work. So when you look at Gideon, don't think about what grand thing from human perspective that God's calling you to do. Think about what the great thing is that he's calling to do in your own life. So let's take a look at Gideon. First, we must understand that God calls the willing, not the wonderful. God calls the willing, not the wonderful. You see, Gideon was a man of action once he was convinced of the path that he was told to take. He was not somebody who dilly-dallied and waited. We'll see, of course, that there were times when he asked God for signs. But most of the time, when God gave him a declaration that this is what you should do, when God told him to obey, he was willing to obey immediately. He had an an attitude in his heart that he was willing to embrace what God was telling him and act upon it. What's interesting is he didn't shy away from questioning God, though. In several instances, We'll see that when God appears to Gideon at the wine press and calls him, he says, Gideon, almighty man of God. Gideon says, well, how can that be? Because we have invaders and our whole country is a mess and I can't believe that you would do this. He's talking back to God. When he says again, to go in your might and to deliver Israel, he says, I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm, I'm weak. My family's weak. When he says, go, you sh- this is how I want you to defeat the Midianites, he asks for a sign. The golden fleece. We'll talk about what that means. He wants, not only does he ask for it once, he asks for it twice. But once he made the decision to act, he he acted. And that came from a place of willingness. Even though he was afraid and hardly the person that God told him he was, he was willing to do what God had asked him. In our Christian life, in life generally, I sort of divide it up here, but really, as Christians, all of life is a Christian life. It's important to note that willingness goes a long, long way. There are things that God is calling you to do. There are ways that he's asking you to obey. There are things that he's asking you to give up. There are actions that he wants you to take. There are ways he wants you to volunteer and serve that are frightening for you, that are probably not your preference. But God is not asking you to look at the results. He's asking you to be willing. He's not looking at who you are now and what you're capable of. He's looking for a willing heart that's willing to allow God to act on your behalf. I was thinking about why do we choose to not be willing? What is it about our hearts that often pushes back against God when he asks us to do something? And I think there are several. One, the most obvious that I can resonate, I'm sure you can too, is fear. Is fear. We don't know what the future might bring. We don't know if we're up to the task. What if we fail? What if the opinions of others turn out to be different than what we had hoped? What if we look foolish? That's a powerful one. I often wonder when we gather together, and there are times where we're trying to create an environment where God is present with us, where God is here. Why do we hands in our pockets? 
What is it about our unwillingness to be demonstrative in the way that we worship the Lord? What is it about in our unwillingness or in our fear of speaking to people about potentially uncomfortable things? Because we're afraid to look foolish. But, as I've said before, and I'll say again, you can't save your butt and your face at the same time. There are times when we must act. And in doing so, we actually help ourselves, but there is a risk factor. We need to be willing to give up to the Lord the fear of the opinion of others and ask him to take the power away. Maybe we're afraid of our physical safety. Maybe God's calling you to a country that probably wouldn't look too kindly upon you coming and preaching Jesus. So even though we feel the call of God, we push back. Perhaps it's apathy. So fear is one. Apathy might be another. It's like, eh, I could sit in my chair and do nothing. And that sounds better than getting up and doing what God is asking of me. There are times when I do this too, and I know there are times when each of you do this as well, where it just doesn't seem that important and you really don't care. Maybe it's the love of your sin. I'm unwilling because the implications of acting in the way God's asking me to act means that I'm going to have to give up something that I really, really like and I know is wrong. I'll give you an example. For a while, at least, I was afraid to go into ministry, not only because I was afraid I was going to be poor, which I'm not. You guys are generous. Thank you very much. But I was afraid that I would be on display. Now, I get up here every Sunday, but I don't feel like I'm on display. I'm up here every Sunday, and I can talk about my struggles. I often do. I can talk about the things that I deal with in my own life. And I do this not as a sort of... uh, willingness or desire for you to be a voyeur of my life, I do this because I'm trying to find points of connection with you. I want you to know that you're not alone, that it's easy to come into church and to see someone stand on stage and give this idealistic, theoretical, totally detached from life, yet maybe biblically true sermon, but in the end, it's completely severed from your everyday life. It's like, yeah, that sounds great, but then I'm going to go home and still do this habitual sin. I'm still going to get angry with my family. I'm still going to struggle with fear and anxiety. But I feel if I'm honest with you about how God is working in my life, your spiritual leader, then it will create space in your heart that God will use that to show you his grace and for you to be willing to embrace it, to recognize that you don't need to be perfect because you never will be. We'll talk about that. Maybe it's pride. You know better than God. God, you can't be sending me. You don't know me. You're sending the wrong guy. Or maybe it's, I wouldn't do it that way, I would do it this way. So we push back against what God is telling us to do. We cannot see how this course of action will bring about good, so we don't even consider it. But the answer, of course, to all of these is Jesus Christ. New Testament says, because Christ lives within us through the Holy Spirit, that that Holy Spirit casts out fear. Think about this. You will never, ever be left or forsaken in this life or in the next. So what are you afraid of? The physical pain that you might feel here is a result of being obedient to God. Because trust me, there are times when it's physically painful. Am I right? There are times when God is calling you to be uncomfortable and to place yourself in danger even. But fear not the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can hurt forever in hell. When we look to our life here and we say, I'm not up to the task because I'm so broken, Christ died for our brokenness and uses our brokenness, redeeming it for his purposes. 
We have no excuse for the way that we live here except that we want what we want. The root of everything is sin. And the root of that is self-centered pride. We're dead to sin. We're no longer alive to it. So the sin that holds us here, the sin that we say, well, I can't possibly step out like this because God is asked because I'm a sinner, because I'm too messed up. You don't know. I hear this all the time. God can't save me. God can't use me. You don't know what I've done. But nothing is beyond Jesus' blood. Nothing. That God died for the sin of the entire world and all those who would trust that in Jesus Christ we would look, we would find forgiveness from everything, including our shame. So the question, ask yourself, I'm sure you're already thinking about it, where is God calling you to show willingness? I'm hoping that as I'm speaking, that God is placing an image in your mind and he's telling you, this is the area that I want you to focus on today. Where's God calling you to be willing? What are you holding back? You know, because we can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I've given up everything. Look at these 99 things I've given up to you. And his response is, is, what is that in your pocket? It's the one thing that we've held back. It's the one thing we've hidden. It's the one back door we've left open. It's that that God is calling us to give up, to be willing to give to him, to give it all and every piece. Are you afraid of the implications of what it might mean, that your life might not be as comfortable as it is right now? Or that you might be asked to step out and do something that is otherwise unsavory. But you know God is calling you to do it. You don't need to be up to the task. This is the bane of a church that's run by volunteers asking people to step out and trust that God has gifted them. That God can use their brokenness. That God can use their inability. We often look to what we're capable of, like I said, and we discount what God is capable of doing because I'm not up to the task. I could never lead a small group. That's like the famous refrain. I could never lead a small group. Listen, if God's calling you to lead a small group, you will be the best small group leader that there is. God uses your brokenness. He only needs your willingness. So God calls the willing, not the wonderful. What do we do when we lack willingness? Well, we pray for it. Lord, make me willing. Make me willing. Lane and I talk about this all the time. There was a time in her life when she would pray about her singleness. She would say, Lord, I want what you want, but I don't want this, so make me want this. Make me willing. Did he do it? Please say yes. Please say yes. We pray for the willingness. We see David in Psalm 51 do this after he confesses his sin. He says, Lord, restore in me a clean heart and the joy of my salvation. Make me willing. Put in me a willing heart, he says. We pray for willingness. We confess our idolatry. Whatever it is that we're holding on to as a reason to not step out is an idol in our life. It's something that needs to die. And the way we kill an idol is we confess it and we declare the word of God over it. We look to Jesus Christ as the answer to that thing. It's an idol. We reason with ourselves from God's word. What does God's word say about me? And you know what? In the end, we act anyway. We act anyway, trusting that God will give us the willingness when it comes. And this takes some faith. That's our second piece. God calls the faithful, not the fabulous. God calls the faithful and not the fabulous. Gideon was both a faithful person and a faith-filled person. Gideon was, first of all, faithful. He did what he said he would do. He acted when he decided to act. He saw his mission through 
to the end. This, of course, like I said, was not without the need for some convincing. You know, but God is so patient with us. When we ask for a sign or we ask for reassurance, God gives it to us because God is good. Because God is good. Gideon comes to God and he doubts by faith. Did you know you could do that? That you could doubt by faith? In fact, there's a message coming up in this series where we talk exactly about that. How is it that I can doubt what God is telling me and at the same time embrace what it is by faith? Not trying to exclude myself from what he's asking, but understand it better and to see him in it. Gideon trusted the Lord's guidance in conquering the Midianites, and we'll see how he did that with just 300 men and some trumpets. 300 men, a marching band, I guess you could probably, he did it with a marching band. He defeated the Midianites with a marching band. We will see that this method of battle was given by the Lord, and Gideon followed it exactly. God said, this is, now we'll see that God tells them that you're going to defeat them using no swords. Gideon says, okay. And then he tells those following him, do what I do. And sure enough, he wins. Sure enough, he wins. God wants us to be following what he's asking us to do exactly. God wants us to have a willing heart to believe what he's telling us and then be faithfully executing how it is that he wants us to accomplish it. Because God can lead us to tremendous victories when we trust his way and not our own. So not only was Gideon faithful, but Gideon was faith-filled. He possessed a worshipful attitude. We see at the beginning of the story that he knocks down the Asherah pole and destroys the altar to Baal, upon which he builds another altar and sacrifices to the Lord. We'll see that when Gideon goes down to the Midianite camp with his servant Purah, and they overhear two um, guards talking, his response to what he hears was worship. It says that Gideon heard what the servants said and he worshiped Yahweh. He had a heart that knew God was God. He had a heart that was always willing to worship. We'll see later that that desire to worship actually goes awry and he begins to worship other things. But Gideon at this point was a faith-filled servant. His worship, we'll see, occurred before he acted and not afterwards. There were times that he looked to God, worshiped God for the truth, and then as a result went out and acted. He didn't wait for anything else. Now, God does not ask you to consider the success of your calling. God's asking you to do something. He's not asking you to look at results. He's not asking you to anticipate consequences. He's asking you to just simply faithfully obey exactly what he's asking you to do. He's calling you to trust him again and again. So where is God asking you to step out in faith? There's some area in your life, there's some event, because this isn't something that's unique or it doesn't happen all the time. This is We live here. We live day to day in a place where God is asking us to trust him, to give something up, to step out in faith and to do it his way. Because the truth is, there's a lot easier ways of accomplishing what we think we need accomplished in our life we never get the results that we hope for. They're always lacking. But it's when we trust God and we look to Him. We only need to take the first step in faith. Put a stake in the ground. Sometimes people here at church give me, I like in the staff, and they give me a hard time because I just want to start something without planning everything else. I get it. Get a stake in the ground. 
got to get a stake in the ground. Once the stake is in the ground, we have to act. We have to. The same principle is true in your life. God's asking you to deal with an idol in your life. God's asking you to deal with some other issue in your life. Put that stake in the ground. By faith, take that first step. Tomorrow, he's going to ask you to take that step again, and you're going to take that step again by faith. God is not asking you to be faithful for the rest of your life. God is asking you to be faithful today. Tomorrow, you worry about being faithful then. This is how big things get accomplished for God. This is how, over time, we become more like Jesus Christ. It's one step at a time. It's one act of faith at a time. When we begin to live our life like that and say, well, I'm just going to do what God has placed in front of me at this moment. And then tomorrow or later today, I'll do the same thing. Ten years, you look back and you say, how did I get to where I am? By one simple step of faith, repeated again and again. Put the stake in the ground. Step out in faith. You only have to be faithful Today, you worry about being faithful tomorrow, tomorrow. But if we focused on all the positive aspects of Gideon, we would lose out on the whole, we'd miss the whole picture, in other words. Because Gideon sure had flaws. And that is really good news for us. Because it tells us that God doesn't need somebody who's perfect to do what he's asking them to do. That God doesn't use the perfect to accomplish his mission. In fact, God calls the imperfect, not the impressive. God calls the imperfect, not the impressive. This is something of a, um, I think like the modern church in some ways is struggling with this. We look at what looks good. We look at what sounds good. We look at all of these optics and how everything appears. And we go to these big churches and we're like, wow, this is impressive. Look at all these things. Ever since we started the AV push here at Grace, when I go to other places, like I went to a theater in Milwaukee, I went to a concert someplace else, I went to, it's like I walk in now, I'm looking at all the lights. Like, how does this work, and how does all this fit together, and how can we utilize what we need? Sometimes I go in there, and I say, this is so impressive, but there's, like, death and nothingness inside. There's nothing. God uses the imperfect, not the impressive. Gideon was a round, like I said, round and complex character who had both sinful and, we'll say, sanctified attributes of his character. Think about some of this. We'll see later in the story that Gideon becomes presumptuous. He begins to see himself and what he's accomplished in his own heart and life as being the reason for the accomplishment. He loses sight of who God tells him he is and begins to see himself for who he thinks he is. And there's disastrous results. He was fearful. When told to destroy the altar, I can't. When told to destroy the altar of Baal, he does it at night. I kind of can't fault him because I would probably do it at night too. But he does it at night. He doesn't want anyone to see what he's doing. He does it in the silence of the darkness. He was vengeful. He revisits those who slight him to exact vengeance. Self-serving. He utilizes at the end of his life his notoriety to collect some of the spoils of the war to create something that eventually becomes an idol in his life. And as I said, he was an idolater. He ends his life worshiping a golden idol and living a sexually promiscuous life that actually comes out to bite his family later on. In our last message of this series, we're going to talk about that legacy. We're going to talk about how does one's behavior here and trust in God to accomplish things in their own life, when it's gone awry, how does that affect the next generation? This is something that should give all of us pause. All of us pause. It's interesting. No, I'm going to not say that. 
Okay, despite knowing all this, the Lord just said, shut up, don't be quiet. Uh, despite knowing all this, the Lord still used him. Despite knowing that Gideon would wind up where Gideon winds up, God used him anyway. God knew Gideon's heart and what he was capable of, both good and bad. He knew his whole life and how it would end. Yet he chooses to use a person with imperfections. Maybe you're afraid to act or do something that I feel God's calling you to do because of a deep sense of your imperfection. I lack what it takes. I'm no good. I know, look, I'm, I know some of the self-talk that you guys say to yourselves because I do it. I know how hard we can be on ourselves, blowing our imperfections out of proportion and minimizing God and Jesus who died for them. I know. But God loves to use the imperfect because it highlights his glory. How do you think it was to the Midianites when they realized they were defeated by 300 people blowing a trumpet? And that the God of Israel did that, not the God of the Midianites. That's God's glory being shown. God loves to use the imperfect because it highlights his power and not the power of man. As they begin picking out and rooting out the numbers to send against the Midianites, they get down to the number 300. 300 against, I think it was like 14,000. Tremendous odds. God's power, not man's power. God loves to use the imperfect because it highlights his grace, that he's willingness to use those of us who are so broken and sinful. Gives God joy as we seek to rely on him in relationship, attacking the things God has called us to attack in our own lives. It gives God joy. In the end, why does God use the imperfect? Because there's no one else. There's no one else to use. We're all broken. We're all sinful. From the CEO to some high-powered company to some guy homeless on the street, we're all messed up. We're all broken. That's why Jesus came. You guys got to understand that. We need to get that in our hearts, that we are broken and that Christ died for those imperfections, that Christ died for that brokenness. And so we needn't allow the imperfections that we feel or feelings of not being up to some task prevent us from honoring God and obeying him. The only perfect person ever walked this earth was Christ. And he judged your imperfections on the cross 2,000 years ago. He saw every sin you've ever committed or committing right now or today or will commit in the future. And he died for you. When you embrace that by faith, you are completely forgiven. That the shame that you carry no longer needs to be carried because it was judged on Christ and the cross as well. We live by faith. We keep our eyes on Christ and his perfection. God is capable of doing amazing things in our lives. Nothing is too hard. Nothing. So when you're faced with the task that seems out of your league, I know that. I went from plumber to part-time intern to filling in as the lead pastor to being the lead pastor. I was talking to another pastor and they said, so where did you do your youth work? I said, no. He goes, so were you an associate pastor somewhere? I said, no. So you went from a felon to a lead pastor? I said, yep. He said, how'd you do that? I said, I don't know. I don't know. God did it. God did it. I stand here sometimes and think, how did I get here? And they're listening. Like when you talk about earthly credibility, I'm the last person. But God is here. 
I know the power of redemption and the power of God in my own life. I know how far God can take somebody who is willing, who is faithful, and trust me, is so imperfect. I know what God is capable of, and God wants to use you as well. In a world that promotes strength and success, perfection, sinful ambition, it's easy for us to believe that God demands so much from us, that God wants us to be this perfect exemplar of the... Sometimes I watch Christian movies and I just cringe. Because life is not like that. It's not like that. I know People who stay at my house, they know what life is really like. They see me in my actual element, right? And God is continuing to work. This lie that God demands these things from us prevents us from experiencing real change in our lives because we assume everything then is our responsibility, that it's on us, that we need this, the, uh, the abilities, capabilities, aptitude to do what God is asking us to do, that we need to be strong in ourselves, but we don't need to be mighty. We don't need to be perfect. We need to be fearless. But we must never forget that God's ways are not humanity's ways. He does not call the great. He does not call the mighty. But he empowers the average, the fearful, the everyday person to do great and mighty things. We simply need to let him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this beautiful morning that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Gideon, the account of Gideon trusting in you and what he accomplished. And truthfully, Lord, the account of Gideon turning to himself and looking to himself in self-reliance and what that means uh, is a warning for us. We thank you, Lord, for using us, even though we don't deserve it. We pray, Lord, that in those areas that we've been resistant, that you would give us the grace to trust in you where we're not willing that you would give us willingness, where we uh, are struggling to have faith, you would make us faithful. And Lord, no matter what, in any area of our lives, that you would use our imperfections and our weaknesses for your glory and our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go into a time of communion now. So being that we, at that time of year, going from one board to another, I forgot to get the elements out while they are out there. So they're here. So we're going to take communion the way that we took it during Good Friday. Okay, We're going to come up in the center. Marty, will you help me again? Okay, Marty's going to move the rows as we go back over here. The annex, I'd like you to go out those doors and come back and line up and come this way. And then when you go back to your seat, go that way. Those of you on this side, come down the aisle. Go back to your seat that way so we can make sure that we uh, get through the collection of the elements quickly and we can get to the praise. When you get your communion element, you're going to get a cup. For those of you who are visiting, I know there's some visitors here. There's a cellophane on the top. You're going to pull that first. That's going to show you the bread. You're going to be able to take it. And then you'll take the foil top off, and that'll open up the juice. Okay. What I want you to do as we sit here, after you get your elements, as we consider what the Lord wants us to do in our own lives, that we have a conversation with Jesus. And we say, Lord, what is it that you're telling me today? How is it that you can restore me? How, what do I need to confess? What am I afraid of? What am I idolizing? When you've talking, spoken to him, and you confessed his blood over those things, I want you to take communion with him, remembering that it's the bread in this that signifies his righteous life, his perfection for your imperfections. And that the juice here signifies his blood, his death on the cross on your behalf. Because that's where we all deserve to be. So allow me to pray for the elements and we'll get started. Father, I pray for this bread and this juice to 
pray, Lord, that you would bless it and that you would use it as a symbol to remind us of the great power of Christ and what he's done on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of him and what he did in our stead. And I pray, Lord, that you would implant it deeply in our hearts that it's not by our own strength, it's not by our own goodness, but it's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are saved. And it's in his name we pray. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.